Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you, we see you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film To Be or Not to Be from 1942 with my wonderful guest, Tiro Schneider. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. I am your host, Sarah Greenfield. And this week on the show, we're talking about the film To Be or Not to Be from 1942 with my wonderful guest, Tirosh Schneider. Hi, Tirosh. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Hi. Thanks for being here. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so good to be here. Um, So today we are watching the film To Be or Not to Be from 1942, as I mentioned. How was your viewing of this film? How was your experience this time around? Um, this was my first time seeing it, and uh, I'd seen the the Mel Brooks remake before, um, but I'd never seen the original, so I watched it with my parents when I was home for Passover, which was a perfect viewing, uh, and it was phenomenal. It just kind of blew my mind, and I have lots of thoughts I can't wait to talk about. Fabulous. I can't wait to talk about it, especially since I have not seen the Mel Brooks remake and didn't know that it existed until after I had seen the original and people were confused when I would tell them about the movie that I had seen. Um, they'd be like, <laughs> oh yeah, that Mel Brooks movie. And I was like, there's a Mel Brooks movie? What? No, there's one earlier than that. So yeah, I'm so old school that I only knew about the 1942 one and did not know about the Mel Brooks one. Honestly, you don't necessarily need to know <laughs> the Mel Brooks one, <laughs> but it is fascinating. And I watched it the next night with my parents. Oh. So lots of thoughts on both. <laughs> We're going to get into that. That's like one of my questions for you is how does it stack up and what are the differences and all of that? Um, okay. So the reason I chose this film is, well, it's been on my list since I started the podcast to do this film, just because I love this movie. I love that one. It's a movie that really satirizes the Nazis and their ideology and how ridiculous it all is. And I love that it's like very comedic about this really harsh topic like in real time like all of these things are happening in real time and this show is like or this movie is like isn't that absolutely ridiculous so I love that it's like calling Nazis what they were in real time and then I also love that it's a movie about actors saving the day um I love that but I also love that it shows actors as very vain people too like it doesn't just show <laughs> actors as perfect heroes it shows like you know stereotypes and vanities um but they still save the day and they're still great and we love them so I love both of those ideas that are in this film and then also on the show we've never talked about Ernst Lubitsch who is the director of this movie and we've never talked about Carol Lombard and I really enjoy both of them so it was like time to discuss them um, so those are the reasons I chose this film. And I chose you to watch it with me, obviously, because you are an actor and because you are Jewish and you will appreciate both complexities that are involved in this film. <laughs> Jewish actor, Tiro Schneider. <laughs> Jewish actor, Sarah Greenfield, former 
actor that is also Jewish. Perfect people to talk about the movie. Um, <laughs> all right. So plot synopsis of this film, people at home. Okay. This movie was made in 1942, released in 1942, uh, but it takes place in Poland, August, Poland, 1939, uh, right around the time when the Germans end up invading Poland in World War II. Um, and so the idea is at the top of the show, uh, we kind of get the tone of the piece, which is they're pointing out all of these places in Poland and they're like, everywhere in Poland has a ski in it. And that's how you know you're in Poland. And we love it here. And they show this troupe of actors putting on a satirical play about the Nazis called Gestapo. Jack Benny, I should say, plays the character of Joseph Tura, who's an actor. Joseph Tura, the actor, is playing like a Nazi character in this play. And at first, you're not really sure what you're seeing. You're like, am I watching a movie that's going to be about Nazis? Like, what's going on? And then it's revealed that what you're watching is just a play and we're making fun of the Nazis. Um, and you have like a collective sigh of relief, like, oh, thank goodness. So Joseph Tura is kind of a ham actor that's one of the leading men in this company, and his wife, Maria Tora, is a star, and she is Carol Lombard, and she is the female lead of this company. And we see what happens when the Nazis invade the country, and the country goes from being this more joyful place to being like a terrible, awful, authoritative government, like everything is terrible kind of place. Um, so before the war begins, Maria Toro, we learn, likes to have dalliances with young, handsome men. And the way she arranges to have these dalliances is when her husband is performing Hamlet, he'll go on stage and start doing his to be or not to be speech. And whatever man she has like made a pact with in the audience will get up and come to her dressing room and like hang out with her. <laughs> So um, that's kind of like the way we see all of this happening before the uh, the war breaks out. The The man that she's currently having a dalliance with is uh, a lieutenant in the RAF, I guess. He's a, a pilot. He's in aviation. I, I don't I, I get confused about like army rankings and stuff. He's a lieutenant. He's a flyer, whatever. Um, so he's kind of like the last guy she's hanging out with. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> aka cheating on they like never show them kissing or anything but you're like yes she's sleeping with these men they're totally having an affair but Jack Benny's a moron and we're fine with it like it's great <laughs> so this pilot man uh, ends up working with a man named Zelensky Professor Zelensky and at first we think Professor Zelensky's a good guy and he's like everyone I'm going on a secret mission to Poland uh, I know we're not in Poland right now and I know you all want to reach your families please give me the names of your families so I can contact them for you and um, the lieutenant guy's like okay look my family isn't in Poland but I got a message for this actress Maria Tora uh, who's very famous and Zelensky doesn't know who she is and he's kind of like oh no if he was really Polish he would know who Maria Tora was oh no so he gives him a message of like look Tell her to be or not to be, and she'll know what it means. Um, so the lieutenant reports his suspicions to the higher ups, and they realize that Zelensky is a spy and a fake and a terrible person, and that he's going to take these names of all of the pilots' families and have them like sent to concentration camps because he's a monster. Um, and so they hatch a plot where like the pilot is going to go back to Poland. He's going to alert the resistance. They have this whole plan. He goes through with most of it, but he can't finish it. So he has Maria Tora deliver the picture of Zelensky to the resistance. And now she's kind of involved in the resistance, too. Um, and Zelensky ends up meeting her and takes a shine to her and wants to have an affair with her. And she's like, oh, crap. But she's really smart and she finds ways to get around things. So she ends up 
um, working with Jack Benny and the rest of the actors to hatch a plan where they're going to capture Lelensky. They're going to get the names of the people who are related to those flyers so that they don't get to, you know, Germany and the people don't get sent to concentration camps and they're going to try to get out of the country. And they do all of this through various mishaps because it's a comedy. A lot of things go wrong. A lot of plans are changed. Jack Benny dresses up as numerous characters and pretends he is them. Um, And they end up being able to get out of the country because of their being good at acting. And, um, And they save the day. They help the resistance. They keep the names from getting leaked. And they're heroes. Yay! Did that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's a little bit confusing because it's a comedy, you know? Comedies are zany and they have a lot of various plot points. Okay. Anyway, so that's the plot synopsis of To Be or Not To Be. Tirosh, what are your like opening thoughts on this film? What really kind of hit you uh, in watching it that you want to discuss here today? Yeah. I mean, it is funny hearing you describe the plot because it is zany <laughs> and it's such a farce. And and yeah. Lubitsch was the, the, the farce guy, like sort of. He was there's this idea of like the Lubitsch touch which was always sexual which was always about like him bringing sex into American movies I would say like but in a very sophisticated elegant way like it's not body yeah it's like the sophisticated sex farce and it's so interesting to see that in this movie about Nazis and I think it's so incredible that it is very much like a comedy first and he'll go for any joke he can uh and it's so funny And yet I don't think it undermines the reality of what's happening or the depth of these like powerful, painful moments. Um, Though, and maybe I'm getting ahead of myself, but I was reading about all the reviews of the time and that people were like deeply offended by it. And we're like, you cannot make a comedy about Nazis. I read that too. Like the reception at the time, people were kind of shocked by this um, because the Nazis are doing atrocious things. And here we're like, joking about that even if we're making them look like fools but i think also in hindsight i appreciate this movie so much because it really calls out what the nazis are doing and how terrible it is and how monstrous it is like there's a line in there that zelensky says when he's hitting on carol lombard where he's like does this look like the face of a monster and i'm like yes that is the face of a monster um so I, i just love the foresight of it all that Everything that they say about the Nazis is true and holds up. And so the fact that we don't just have movies like Schindler's List about the Holocaust, but that we have these these comedies that really make fun of and mock the Nazis in real time to me is huge. But yes, you're right. The reception was rough. And I read that um, Jack Benny's father walked out of the film because he was so offended that his son was wearing a Nazi uniform and saying language like, I really hate saying this to people at home, like Heil Hitler, which they say so much in the film, kind of like they do in Jojo Rabbit, that film as like, oh, it's over the top. It's like a joke. They say it so much. Like they can't, (laughs) it's something that they can't stop saying to each other. Um, And so, yeah, his dad walked out originally and then he had a conversation with his dad about it and was like, no, you really need to stick around and see the rest of the film. And his dad ended up seeing it 46 times in theaters because he loved it so much. So yeah, I get the initial shock and I bet it's, it's not like anything else of the time that I can think of. There's nothing else that is the satirical. The closest thing I can think of is The Great Dictator. And I was reading about how Chaplin later said, if I had known the reality of the concentration camps, I wouldn't have made The Great Dictator. Or it actually might be, I couldn't have made The Great Dictator. I couldn't have found the comedy in it. 
I could talk about just how much I love this movie and how brilliant so much of the comedy is. But I think this like lingering thought that I'm sitting with is what is the purpose of satire and is it helpful or is it harmful or is it innocuous? Like, I don't know. I thought throughout the whole movie, I thought a lot about sort of comedians joking about Trump and watching this in hindsight, it's, it feels radical and it feels unbelievable. Um, And like you said, it feels equally, if not more powerful than a lot of really dramatic Nazi movies um, because it, it gets to sort of a, a humanity um, even having these imperfect protagonists who beat the Nazis, you know, it's like you have this happy ending, but I love that Joseph Tura is like this pompous asshole who's hilarious <laughs> and how the, the, the Nazi fighters are very much people who are flawed. And, and I, what I, the, the phrase I always think about is like the, the, antidote to dehumanizing is humanizing mm. um and i think it's what art has the power to do is that when we're humanizing people we're inevitably fighting an ideology of dehumanization and it's still this film is still very clear about like the greater right and the greater wrong right mm-hmm. like you're right we can see these human aspects to all these characters like when we're looking at Colonel Earhart, concentration camp Earhart. And you're like, oh boy, what a nickname. Oh, and he's so proud of that nickname. But (laughs) the joke of him being this kind of boss that always either wants to take credit for ideas that weren't his or blames the person directly below him when the ideas go wrong. You know, (laughs) we've, we've seen that person. Everyone knows that terrible, obnoxious boss or person. So he is a human in that way. But then it's still very, very clear that what the Nazis believe is absolutely insane and absolutely wrong and that nobody else might be perfect, but what they believe is not. There's never a time when we're worried that Carol Lombard will become a Nazi, even though they're trying to indoctrinate her, right? (laughs) We're never worried for her because she knows the difference between right and wrong. Like maybe she cheats on her husband, whatever. There's a greater right and wrong that has to deal with humanity. And it's very clear who is on what side and what side is correct and what side is not correct. And the Nazis are not correct. That's so insightful that Lubitsch, I think he apparently said that he likes setting his sex comedies in Europe because Americans were more comfortable with Europeans doing like having affairs and things because they weren't Americans committing immorality, but that he was like, no, 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 the affairs, that's not wrong. That's not immorality. Nazism, that's immorality. That it was actually a much clearer idea of what's ethical and what's not. Um, And I'm realizing now I very much stole verbiage of Ernst Lubitsch's because I read a quote earlier and then I'm like, oh, when I said why I chose this movie, I basically just ripped off his quote. But he has this really great quote that says, what I have satirized in this picture are the Nazis and their ridiculous ideology. I have also satirized the attitude of actors who always remain actors, regardless of how dangerous the situation might be. I love that juxtaposition of like, yes, I am 100% satirizing Nazis, but I'm also satirizing actors. I think that's what gives this film a really nice balance. Um, The Jack Benny character in particular, I mean, he cannot help himself. He is in incredibly dangerous situations. And no matter the situation, he's like, this great actor, Joseph Tura, you've heard of him, no? Like, he can't help but promote himself. He can't help but, like, again, he's talking to a Nazi that could murder him. And when the Nazi is giving him information about his wife being, like, having infidelities, he cannot control his temper. He cannot control himself in very basic ways <laughs> um, <laughs> that would reflect the situation uh, because of his vanity, because of his pompousness. Um, he cares so much about what people think of him and his performances. 
And he's always <laughs> working that into whatever situation he's in. And, and I love that. And I think that's really funny. Again, like remembering the humanity of these moments that it's so easy to sort of characterize this as like, well, this has to be a serious film. And it's like, no, this gets to a much deeper truth about humans, which is they are always human. My So my, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors who um, were in two concentration camps. They met in the ghetto. Um, and I grew up with the stories. And my dad was saying, actually, after we watched this movie, that there was a lot of humor that part of how they survived the concentration camps was with humor. They, there were jokes, there was love. Like I think remembering that and holding that and allowing us to experience that is really important. There's a story I always think about. Um, there's two stories. One is there was a Nazi who essentially saved my grandparents' life many times. And it wasn't because he was Schindler and it wasn't because he helped them and saved them and, what knew that Jews were people. It's that he liked my grandfather because he was a good mechanic. He just liked him. And so there were lots of times where someone would go to shoot my grandfather and he'd be like, stop it. No, if anyone shoots him, it's me. And he didn't shoot him because he liked him. Oof. And that's part of the reason I'm alive today. And my grandfather apparently used to say, like, if I saw Vishman, Colonel Vishman, if I saw him on the street, I'd hug him. He saved my life. Um, This guy was, a, I think major alcoholic, I think probably to cope with what they were all doing. And it's something I think about all the time because it's not monster or not a monster. It's like deeply flawed humans and deeply troubling truths that are hard to hold. Um, and then the other moment I always think of is when my grandparents were, they were running from the death march and they lived in the forest for a year. And when my grandmother ran, a Nazi held her at gunpoint and she lifted her skirt like she had to pee. And the Nazi turned around because he was a good German boy who was taught never to look at a, a woman while she pees. And she and my grandmother ran and made it to the forest. So this like psychology of this is a Nazi who's also a good German boy that's going to turn around when a woman lifts her skirt. The, like I was so I'm so grateful I grew up with those stories not really understanding at the time, but now looking at them and thinking it's so easy to characterize Nazis as Nazis and not as people. Um, There's so much complexity. Wow. Yeah, in everything yeah. you're saying. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I cut you off. I just was acknowledging. Yes. No, exactly. And I think, I, I think some of the reactions to the film at the time were probably like, this is simplistic. You're, you're turning into a comedy. And I think, no, it's much more complex. It's actually, yeah a lot more complex to make a film that has all of these different layers. Also, can I just say, one, thank you so much for sharing those stories with me. And two, I am so deeply, deeply sorry that your family had to live with that trauma, but I'm so grateful that they survived. Like, on my end, the family that was in Austria died, you know, like they mm -hmm. were killed in concentration camps, and I don't know what happened to them. So the I, just hearing that your family survived, what they had to endure acknowledging that it really happened because a lot of people want to deny that it happened. Thank you for sharing that in this <laughs> forum. Um, because it's, yeah, it's, it's like history that needs to live on. Um, and my, I mean, thank God my family came over earlier. Like they were over here in the 1900s for the most part. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we had the whole Ellis Island experience and most of my family got out. So I'm lucky in that way. Um, but yeah, the family that remained behind, they were, they were killed in concentration camps. So mm. I, it's just like the horror of it. It has affected both of our families and both of our stories as people. <laughs> like, um, yeah. so 
this may feel like forever ago. It's almost a hundred years ago. And yet it's a part of our, our history. I didn't know I was going to say that or go into that, but there we go. You never I mean, know. I guess I did because I can't watch a movie about Nazis and not think, I mean, I was, you know, yeah. again, watched it with my dad who was born in 1946. My grandparents got out of the forest in 1945, liberated by the Russian army. And then my dad is born. So yeah, this wow. trauma and this history is very alive. Uh, which is also part of what's so fascinating about watching this in 1942. Yeah. Not only before Americans knew the extent of what was happening, but before Americans were even necessarily on the side of the allies, right? Like, yeah. One thing I was struck by in this movie is how educational it is, as well as entertaining, that it opens with this narration being like, this is Poland. Here's Hitler walking around Poland. You might find that confusing because, and it like really explains it to an American audience and realizing that when this was made, it when they started making it, it was before Pearl Harbor. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of Americans absolutely had Nazi sympathies and, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, there were a lot of, yeah, I just, I saw a play recently. It's called Camp Siegfried, I think. And it's about um, a German camp in long island for american germans who in 1939 are getting ready to fight for germany oh my it's God. an amazing play it was just came out and it's i never learned the history that like americans weren't like gung-ho boo nazis i mean charles Lindbergh was a nazi sympathizer very famously so like, yeah that's a very good point that it wasn't that americans might not have had a touchstone yet and this really broke down the situation for americans and also was very clear about which side is absolutely not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that critics were critical of, of Lubitsch as if it's like, how dare you make this when he was a German Jew, like he was watching his country go through this. I, I, I think that scene, I mean, it brought, there's a lot of moments that brought me to tears, but that scene where they're watching the destruction, you are seeing the destruction yeah. of Poland and the bombing it's devastating. I mean, you feel Lubitsch watching his, his, I mean, he's not from Poland, but watching Poland fall, you feel the like devastation of it. Yes. And I think it's really important to mention there's a Jewish character in this who is completely accepted by his peers, who is very intelligent, who helps to save the day, is an integral part in their plan for saving the day, mm -hmm. and who has these moments to shine throughout the film. Um, three important moments, I think, in the film are they talk early in the film before everything has... In the film, you see Poland before World War II, right? And you see kind of their lives and they're pretty joyful, right? He's frustrated with his buddy about being a spear holder and is like, oh, will I ever play the great roles? Will I ever play Shylock? And he delivers part of Shylock's famous speech, you know, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? And it's fun and it's, you know, jokey. And then we see the bombing happen and the same stores that we saw in the beginning where they're joking about like every store starts with a ski. Here's what, what the stores are. Here's what's fun. We see all those storefronts be bombed. Um, they're not necessarily real storefronts but the the image takes effect right yeah and then we see these two men being like oh god i can't wait for the day when i get to be a spear holder in a play again i can't wait for that day and he delivers the shylock monologue a second time and it's different this time and it's so deeply affecting right it's serious this time and then we get to see it a third time when they're trying to get away from the Nazis. He delivers that Shylock speech to the Nazis. And I think to the people at home, to the mm -hmm. people watching in a theater 
in America, he is delivering this speech. If you poison us, do we not die? Like, look at the humanity of me. I am a Jewish person. I do not deserve to die for being a Jewish person. So to me, each of those moments is so significant. And I think only like a German Jewish director would have thought to put them in. He's not, the Jewish character is not the butt of any joke. He's in on the joke. And I don't know, I think it's so beautifully done. There's even a line that caters to Jewish people that only Jewish people might get. I marked it down because I loved it so much. Uh, Early in the movie, (laughs) they've just done the play and they're like leaving from their rehearsal. And uh, the Jewish character says to another character, what you are, I wouldn't eat. And that character says, how dare you call me a ham? And it's (laughs) so quick and it's so smart. And it's like, yeah, the... (laughs) The Jewish character is understood by his peers, accepted by his peers. Um, I don't know. I just loved, I loved all of that. So I wanted to really shout that out. And I also want to mention that that character is called Greenberg. And the actor that played him is Felix Brassart. And he appears in several of Lubitsch's films. Um, And he's always a sympathetic character. And he just, I always am happy when I see him. He just seems like a welcome presence anytime he's there on screen. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, big Felix Broussard shout out. He's yeah. so good. <laughs> I also think he's um he was born he's also German and he's the mm. only character with a German accent, right? Yes. <gasps> Great point. All of the characters have American accents. Well, some are British, right? I don't remember now. Yeah, there's people in yeah, England. Yeah. I think the English ones are are British. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that he's the only character with a German accent so that when he delivers that speech, it is not just coming from him, it's coming from Lubitsch. It's coming from the people in Europe. That to me was, yeah, I mean, everything you said was brings tears to my eyes even thinking about it again. It's such oh. a stunning moment. It's also, so I think about, I, I once wrote a paper about Mike Nichols, who's also a German Jewish director, um, who... In his movies, often something that is at first very funny slowly becomes really sad or or terrifying or or strange. Um, Like in Catch-22, there's that moment with the intestines where at first it's played for laughs. And by the end, it's like the most horrifying moment. And I think about that both as comedy as a way to welcome people in and reach people that you start with these jokes and then it gets people's attention. Um, But again, like looking at just these these complexities of something that is really funny is also terrifying. We have to hold both. Um, the other thing I love about that moment is how theatrical it is, that like Lubitsch is clearly from a theatrical tradition and it's such a tribute to the theater. It's such a parody of actors. Um, it's also, I very much felt a frustration being just actors or being just theater people and knowing that we can't do that much, that all we can do is say a Shakespeare speech. And there's almost a fantasy to it of what if we could do more that, oh my God, that incredible shot when the curtain lifts and, uh, and, and Zelensky dies. And this, I mean, it's all playing with theatrical conventions of use the spotlight to find him in the crowd, the the curtain lifts to see if he's dead or alive. It's like theater doesn't do anything. And it's both saying, yes, it does. We have power as theater makers to, say something significant to to send a message and also we can't it's just a movie we're gonna have a happy ending and i lubitsch wish i could do more is part of what i felt like i wish i could be in germany fighting the resistance all i have is my comedy and this voice 
And in the movie, he can be part of the resistance. Like the whole thing in the end is like, look, the resistance is still alive. They burned mm-hmm. down that Nazi building. We are still here. We're still going and we're still thriving. That's such a good way of putting it. He wrote that for himself because that was not something he was able to do. There really were people working for the resistance. And so he could only, he could make this art to kind of uplift them, let them know they're not alone. But at the same time, he's he can't be part of the resistance. Ah, yeah. wow. And I and I think Carol Lombard said before she died, which we can we can talk about. Oh, we're gonna but, get into it. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Um, how much this movie meant to her? I think like yeah, when you're you're on the brink of war. I mean, I think we all feel it with everything happening. What can we do? And this feeling of I get to do something that feels at least important. I also just this is I want to break down this moment for people at home because it's such a cool moment. Mm-hmm. What Tirosh is talking about is um, they're trying to catch Zelensky earlier in the film. There's kind of two big bad Nazis besides and also Hitler. There's also Hitler who's a character <laughs> in this movie. Like, There's an actor dressed as Hitler who looks like Hitler and they get out because of impersonating Hitler. <laughs> like, oh God. Um, it's very producer's vibes. Um, but early on when they're trying to capture Zelensky uh, because Jack Benny just cannot keep his shit together. <laughs> um, he blows their secret basically. And Zelensky realizes like, oh, he's an actor and I need to escape. So he tries to escape um, and they they all work as a team, the actors and the the flight guy, the aviator that's there. Um, <laughs> and so T. Roche broke it down beautifully. Like when they're looking for him as he's running amok in the theater, he's crawling underneath the seat. So each person takes an aisle and they're walking up the aisles to try to find him. There's one guy in the lighting booth that's running a spotlight. Um, the director is directing. He's going, okay, you go over there, lift the curtain. And that's when we hear the shot. That's when we're like, oh no, who was shot? Which person was shot? Was it Zelensky? It was. They try to hide him in a prop box. It doesn't work. Spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> but something I appreciated that you mentioned about the end, uh, it's a very theatrical moment. You're right. Um, But when they're creating the moment at the end where they're getting all of them out there on a plane, um, it's because of the work that they had done as actors previously. So it's like, because they had been preparing that satirical play Gestapo, they had all these Nazi costumes that allowed them to escape. So because they were like making art that was satirical at the time, that allowed for their escape. And Mm -hmm. I love that in the end, another detail to add to what you were saying about like how the production values were applied to this or like how the work of the theater was applied to it. I love that the director was the one that came up with a plan for how things would go and was directing everybody in the end. Because the way that they made their escape was theatrical, it worked for these theatrical people. And because they had a director who was good at his job, he was able to direct everybody. Oh, absolutely. Because they were making progressive art, they were able to escape, is basically what I'm trying to say (laughs) very long-windedly. I love that. Well, and that their satirical art gets shut down, right? Yes, it does. Like their, their satirical play gets shut down, which again, speaks to the power of like these... These are dangerous. These, these, yeah. it might seem like comedy, but it's dangerous and we have power. And directors are great. <laughs> of course, the director <laughs> saves the day. Yeah, of course, the director <laughs> saves the day. Um, and I also love that uh, Maria Tura's acting ability is what gets her to survive with around the Nazis mm. um, because she can manipulate them however she wants. Like she's afraid in those situations. And we know as a viewer that Carol Lombard is a little bit afraid, but she puts on a very confident front and she's so smart about sh- how she handles each individual person. Oh, absolutely. It's also amazing to think about Carol Lombard as this like incredible feminist, this really radical feminist figure who was really fighting against misogyny in Hollywood. And to see how 
all these creepy Nazi men are hitting on her throughout the movie and the charm she has, but she, and how strong and, and cunning she is. And to really probably see some of Carol Lombard's actual experience, not just yeah. not with Nazis, but with uh, male directors in Hollywood. Wow. And how she evades all of them and still remains intact. And you're like, what a skill. Wow. Not yeah. everyone can do that. And you just did. Whoa. Well, also owning her sexuality and having affairs and letting that be her own decision. Like it's so, it's such a statement. Especially in contrast to the men around her that are trying to control her. Like the aviator's mm-hmm. like, look, I think we should just, you need to go break up with your husband and we're going to go get married and you're going to be my wife and we're going to live on a farm and this is what we're doing and you're going to quit acting. And she's like, <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Like, just, yeah, she's she's like, defying those, those oh, stereotypes. Honey, oh, honey, that's not what this is. Like, she's, yeah. so, she's so much smarter than any man who wants her. Yes. Well, and the Jack Benny line that he has where um, he's like, I'll decide who my wife's going to kill. Like, because Carol Lombard immediately is in with the resistance. The second she's like, am I going to have to kill Earhart? Is this part of the assignment? Like, how are we going to do that? Or not Earhart. Am I going to have to kill Zelensky? Immediately, she is informed of what the resistance is doing. And she will do anything in order to help, including kill Zelensky. And I just love her grasping of every moment, how smart she is. And Jack Benny being a step behind of like, no, you're my wife. And you got to do what I tell you. And her being like... I'm running circles around you. This is <laughs> like, no, it's going to be my way. And it, you're all going to be fine with it. And even not to read too far into it, I'm sure they weren't like mm, the patriarchy and, and <laughs> toxic masculinity on set. But like that, that not only is his ego, the things that sells him out, but his jealousy that when yes. he, that's what sells him out with uh, Earhart is he's, <laughs> he can't stand someone talking about his, his wife's affair. Yeah. And of course she's going to have an affair. I mean, one, look at her. She's Carol Lombard. She can do whatever she wants. And also, like, you're Jack Benny. You're kind of a moron. Like, you're lucky to have her in the first place. Like, just let her be her. And I love that he's more concerned about someone get walking out on his monologue than the reasoning behind it originally. Like, he mm-hmm. can never put two and two together. I also love at the end that he gets his comeuppance, as does the aviator, where at the, the end of the film, they all get to England. And they're like, what do you want to do next, Jack Benny's character? And Jack Benny takes credit for, like, being the main person involved <laughs> in saving all of them, even though it was a very much a team effort. And uh, his wife goes, he just wants to do Hamlet. <laughs> and so he's in the middle of performing Hamlet. He's about to give his to be or not to be speech. He looks in the crowd. He sees Lieutenant Stanislav, which I love. That's what they named him because everyone at home, obviously, Stanislavski is a very famous acting teacher. So I feel like they threw a, like a name drop and called this Lieutenant Stanislav for that purpose. Anyway. Oh, incredible. Right. Um, so he Jack Benny sees Stanislav in the audience and he's like, OK, I'm going to watch you and see if you get up during my to be or not to be speech. But then he sees another guy that's in some branch of the armed service get up and leave. They both see it and they both go, what? And that's the end of the film. And it's great. You know that Carol Lombard will carry on with her shenanigans and it will be fine. So I love all that. Well, and everything you said before, it's just such brilliant screenwriting. The the uniforms, it's such classic incredible hollywood screenwriting we call in, in improv we call it breadcrumbs where you're leaving breadcrumbs throughout a script and you're picking them up as you go just such beautiful screenwriting magic um i do you'd mentioned earlier carol lombard i want to talk a little bit about her real life situation and what happened with her so carol lombard's basic story is she grows up in indiana comes to hollywood becomes a star pretty young i think she's signed at like 16 or 17 um, with a film contract. Wow. They want her originally to do dr- more dramatic roles because of how she looks. She's very beautiful. 
but she really finds her niche in comedy. Um, they kind of realize this in the film, The 20th Century, which I want to say that's early 30s. Is that 32 or 34? 20th Century came out in 1934. I looked up 20th Century and it just told me about the 20th Century. <laughs> so there's a musical called On the 20th Century, people at home, if you're familiar with it. This is the movie that that musical was based on. Um, and so she plays kind of a role a little bit similar to this, like a very dramatic actress that takes herself very seriously, except this time I think she has agency. And I think in the 20th century, they just make fun of her. I'm not the biggest fan of that movie, but I do love the performances in it. Um, But that's when she, people start to realize that she can do comedy, that she's not just like this gorgeous dramatic actress, but that she's really, really funny and that she has the chops. So I think her most well-received films, my favorite films of hers personally, are all of her screwball comedy films. And she's kind of known as the screwball comedy queen. Mm -hmm. Um, So she's in films like Nothing Sacred. She's in My Man Godfrey, very famously, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and some dramas she made with some leading men like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart were made for each other and in name only. So you can check all of those out to see more of her. But she ends up, I know she married William Powell for a little bit and that they parted amicably and were like great buddies their whole life. But she eventually in 1937 marries Clark Gable. And um, I mean, trigger alert for people or, you know, if you're triggered by this, just let you know, we're talking about a very serious topic. I, I'm a little concerned with Clark Gable. I, I do believe that Clark Gable is a rapist. I think that he, I believe that he's a rapist. So it's hard for me to look back on their romance and not see that and not talk about that. Um, but mm-hmm. I know that they, they were very much in love. They, I don't know if they would have made it or not, but I think that they think that they were the loves of each other's lives. And um, in 1942, uh, after completing this film, Carol Lombard was really involved in the war effort and selling war bonds. And her and her mother, and I think Clark Gable's manager and 15 soldiers were on a plane coming back from an event about selling war bonds. And the plane crashed in Nevada. And part of the reason the plane crashed was because... um, because of the war, they had turned off the air signals. So the people in the plane couldn't communicate outside um, of the airspace. And so they didn't know that there was a mountain coming up ahead in advance. And they ended up crashing into this mountain. And it's incredibly tragic. She dies at 33. Um, who knows what she could have done, what would have became of her. But it's it's incredibly heartbreaking. And And everyone died, not just her. I mean, it was these soldiers died. Her mother died. All of these people died, uh, the pilots. So it's incredibly tragic in that way as well. Yeah. I read that it was a coin toss that her mother was scared of flying and (gasps) wanted to take a train. And Lombard said, let's flip a coin. And she won. So they flew, which is, I mean, it's, you know, yeah, just such a tragic, tragic accident that feels so avoidable in a way, but that's the nature of it. Every time I, (laughs) every time I take a plane, I'm scared if I'm like late for it. Cause I always think about if I'm like, you know, it's the sliding doors principle of like, what if I miss it oh. and then it goes down or what if I, I just make it and then it goes down. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you all at home think about that. <laughs> well, you know, it's fine. The odds are very good for flying. You it's very unlikely to be harmed in a plane, <laughs> in a plane crash, just for people at home. Just want to put that out there. Um, so yeah, that's, That was Carol Lombard's kind of sad story. And I mean, Ernst Lubitsch, we talked a little bit about. I know that he's like a German filmmaker, comes to Hollywood, and his career is essentially making these really elegant and sophisticated comedies. That's like his specialty. So that's that's Ernst Lubitsch. That's Carol Lombard. I mainly know Jack Benny from his radio program. Yes. Um, which is also hard to listen to because he has like a racist depiction of a black character who is his manservant named Rochester. So like 
that's a little bit challenging to mm-hmm. listen to. But he was a very famous comedian in like the 30s and 40s. And not much of an actor. Like, I think he he had done, he had had a successful movie before this, but still had trouble getting work as an actor or, or no one really wanted to cast him in a leading role. And Lubitsch wrote this specifically for him or with him in mind. You're so right. Wait, that's a great story too, actually. The, so what T. Roach just said is totally true. Ernst Lubitsch specifically wrote this part for Jack Benny, and I can't imagine anyone else playing it. Um, but then he wrote the female lead with Miriam Hopkins in mind. And Miriam Hopkins was an actress that he'd worked with previously. Uh, and she she had kind of fallen out of favor. He was writing this as a comeback role for her, but her and Jack Benny didn't get along. So, <laughs> so she ended up being out and Carol Lombard really wanted this role because she had never worked with Ernst Lubitsch and really wanted to. So she campaigned for it and he picked her. And then after all of this was done, uh, Carol Lombard had worked with every single major movie studio because this was a United Artists picture. So I think that's really cool that this was another achievement for Carol Lombard in that after the making of this, she had worked with every single studio. Wow. So yeah, all of that's exciting. <laughs> but yeah, I don't I don't really know much about Jack Benny. He was married to a woman named Sadie who played uh, this woman, Mary, on his show. She was a regular on his comedy show. Um, They called her Mary Livingston, even though in real life she was his wife, Sadie, and she made fun of him all the time on the show. His basic shtick was that he is pompous and cheap and everyone makes fun of him all the time. And so I do like that aspect of his humor. He really does not take himself seriously. The person that he played in this film was kind of like his radio persona. Yeah, it's funny that he's not a good actor that like (laughs) that they cast as the great actor, uh, Joseph Tura. They cast a comedian who's barely trying. I mean, is to be or not to be is like he's not even so acting. <laughs> it's so bad, which I always I, I find it very funny, slowly transitioning to the the Mel Brooks remake that like I, I, I wonder what a remake of this movie would be like with like a great Shakespearean actor in the lead role. But that it's Mel Brooks. They just it's like comedians just want to play this part, which I guess it in some ways, I don't know if this was a conscious decision, but it doesn't matter because what you said the Felix Brassart uh, Shylock speech is the moment that Shakespeare matters. That's who, you, who yes. gets the real speech. Um, it's also, I think, you know, he is really poking fun at actors and how the leads are always pompous jerks who are not necessarily the best actors and the spear holders are much better actors. Oh, and how the spear holders just want, they are conscious of the fact that like, we're just spear holders. We want to say lines like uh, the great moment in the beginning when one of the men who is one of the spear holders in the in the satire they're doing called Gestapo, he's the one that's like playing Hitler. That is the Hitler lookalike, and he walks on the stage, and everyone is saying, you know, oh, I don't want to say it, but I, uh, everyone's saying Heil Hitler, and he he says Heil myself, <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is the first time someone made that joke on film. Like Mel Brooks would famously make it later, but like the spearholder saying this line, he just wants to say something, and the director stops the play and he goes, that's not your line. This isn't supposed to be funny. And the actor's like, yeah, but it would kill. Everyone would laugh at this. This is hilarious. I just love those spearholders that are trying so hard to insert themselves in the bigger picture and have a real part and have lines. They want it so badly. They think about ruining Shakespeare to get the laugh when they're like, we should just drop his coffin one night. That would get a great <laughs> laugh. That really liven up Hamlet. It's almost like Lubitsch knew people are going to criticize this for being a comedy and he's he's defending comedy like he's constantly saying it'll be funny and that matters I want to get the laughs it's also amazing how much Mel Brooks took from this movie you just I myself uh even the line uh 
which apparently every critic points out this line where one of the Nazis says about Joseph Tura, what he did to Shakespeare, we're currently doing to Poland. Oh, yes. Uh, all these critics were like, that is the most offensive line of the movie. They were all very, like they pointed to that line being like, it's not funny for a Nazi to talk flippantly about what they're doing to Poland. Um, and the fact that <laughs> in the producers, there's a lyric where he says, uh, what he did to Shakespeare boosted to Lincoln. Like Mel Brooks stole so much from this. It was, it, Lubitsch was clearly such an influence. Lubitsch was an influence on all of them. I think Billy Wilder had a plaque over his desk that said, what would Lubitsch do? Oh, I love that. Yeah, he just, he, he was such royalty. And the Mel Brooks one, it's clearly his chance to just pay homage to this film and to how much it influenced him. Were there any positive changes that were made? Yeah, so it's actually pretty, like, pretty one-to-one remake of the movie. Um, I think one critic even criticized it and was like, it's just a colorized version of this film. Why would you even (laughs) make it? It's so funny. It's even more farcical. It's like, if this movie's unsubtle at any point, it makes this look like Nickelodeon. Like, it's the least subtle (laughs) movie you've ever seen. It. Um, it's also delightful to see Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft together. I think it's uh, really one of the few movies where we get to see them as a couple and they're so madly in love. It's worth it just for them. Um, what's really interesting, it was made in 1986, I think. 83. 83. There is a gay character added. And at first, so it's it's an actor named James Hawk. I think, I don't know how you say it, James Hake. Uh, at first, he sort of played as like the classic gay role that you're kind of offended by. And that's in sort of a lot of Mel Brooks movies where you're like, oh, cringy. OK, it was a different time. Um, and then he he gets persecuted by the Nazis. He has to wear a pink triangle and they talk about it. He gets taken and part of the plot is now having to not only escape, but get him out and get and free him as a gay character in 1983. And I think the movie is worth it just for this edition, because I was really moved that Mel Brooks knew that we have, if we're going to update this, we're going to talk about who's being persecuted right now. And all of that is factually true. I mean, the pink triangle and gay people being also oppressed by the Nazis and put in concentration camps is all 100% true. And I don't think it gets spoken about enough or there's not a lot of awareness around it. So the story is that James Hake was in the closet, I think, for most of his life. And then in the 50s, start or when in his 50s, he became a drag queen. He was doing a show in West Hollywood. All these famous celebrities started to come see it. Mel Brooks came, went up to him after and said, I'm going to make you a movie star and put him in the movie, oh. uh, which is so lovely. And there's a really there's some really beautiful moments with him. There is a moment in the Mel Brooks one that it's so devastating. And a bun- there's a group of Jews escaping and they're escaping outside the theater. They're escaping through the theater you know how the Nazis have a big show at the end of the original? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They're going to do a show in the theater. Yes, yes. So that's how they found the body of uh, Zelensky because they were going through the props and they went, oh no, his body's in the props. In the Mel Brooks one, we get to see that show and the show becomes how they escape is all these Jews in a clown car and they're all dressed as clowns. And they start to escape through this crowd of Nazis and this one older woman stops and freezes and looks out at a sea of Nazis staring at her and she starts screaming and crying and she can't hold herself together because she's this Jewish woman looking at a sea of Nazis. And then the gay character, James Hake, he comes up and takes a gun to her 
and pulls the trigger and a bang it's like a you know that bang flag and goes Yudin Yudin and laughs and everyone laughs and he gets her out and it's this moment of comedy and horror not being separate at all and it's one of the most disturbing unpleasant moments I've ever seen it you're you're it's like unbelievably disturbing and kind of remarkable so it's it's interesting that like Mel Brooks took what he could to update it in various ways and those moments do sound really relevant so I'm glad that they were included wow thank you for sharing that yeah it's worth watching all right so that'll be when we get to the double feature we will add that um (laughs) I do, just before we move on, one thing we forgot to mention were the disguises. So one mm. of the reasons that the actors succeed in this, especially Joseph Tura, who, by the way, we had said earlier, like, he's not that great. What would happen if a great actor played this? I think it has to be maybe a bad actor because he's always second build. Like, if you look at it, it's like Maria Tura and she's the star. And then in the little letters below it, it says, and Joseph Tura. You're so right. You're so right. But um his ability to disguise himself is what helps him to survive. So, and the thinking on his feet, the improvisation in the moment of when they believe that he's the fake Zelensky and he is left in a room with the dead Zelensky, they've, you know, put a disguise so he has the same beard. He shaves off the other Zelensky's beard and has like a separate, he had an extra beard just in case his beard fell off. <laughs> he was a very prepared actor. His beard always falls off. He always loses one beard. Such an incredible breadcrumb. It's great. So then he he puts that onto Zelensky and is able to say, this is the fake one. I'm the real one and terrify the Nazis around him through the use of disguise, through the use of like improvisation, thinking on his feet. So I loved all of that. And then I love, yeah, later when he loses his mustache and he's like, well, I can't go in now. My mustache is gone. You're going to have to go in dressed in your Hitler costume to get my wife out of there. And that works because everyone's so afraid of Hitler that <laughs> Hitler's able to go in and take Carol Lombard out of like the Nazi haven where they're all staying and he gets them all out of there. Um, all of that's great. So the art of disguise, the art of like costuming and makeup is also shouted out here in this film. Yeah, it is a full blown celebration of the theater. There were some cool details that I noticed in this film this time around. Um, so I noticed when they were looking at the Nazi schedule they highlight Maria Tora's name as someone that's like visiting, you know, uh, Zelensky that day. And below her name is Schindler. So yeah, Schindler's wow. name is below Maria Tora's. So that was very interesting and very cool. Oh, the incomplete suicide in the end is very unusual. And I was actually going to ask you about this. The character of Earhart in the end of the film appears to kill himself, but then he fails at it and shouts out, uh, Schmidt or whoever Schultz or well, I forget oh. the German name he, sh- he shouts out and I was like was that at Schultz, an post yeah. Schultz was that at an post because it was too dark like did they add a voiceover to that because they were worried it would be too dark if he straight up killed himself or is it funnier that he could not even kill him? he's so incompetent that yeah. even in shooting himself he couldn't do it properly and he's a terrible Nazi we hate him his name is literally they call him concentration camp Earhart and he mm-hmm. loves that and laughs about it so he's a monster we're okay with this happening this way um but yeah I was I was wondering that um so I actually wanted to ask you about that what you thought of that moment yeah that I forgot about that as the character's ending it feels like a one-off joke it feels to be like what you said it's funny that he can't even kill himself properly. And it feels like Ernst Lubitsch's dark humor. In one of the yeah. New York Times review, the they're like, his humor is too dark and twisted and we hate it. Like, I think he had an incredibly dark humor and I, I did cringe at that. I was like, oh my God. 
and there's also something I respect about the boldness of it. It's a really, it's a really dark joke. Um, there's also a moment that my mom pointed out that I totally missed where uh, Earhart is trying to seduce her. And he says, I just confiscated a really beautiful bracelet. I have a bracelet for you. I just confiscated it. And my mom was like, oh, it just hit her in the chest because mm. it's these little moments of remembering what's actually happening and who's where these bracelets are coming from. Oh, my God. Yep. I think this movie perfectly balances that personally. Like mm -hmm. it, it's the harshness of the reality told through the lens of comedy that allows these things to be said and for you to like get the deeper meaning from it. it I think it's a really great balancing of tone. I think that like, for me, the biggest danger of comedy and satire is that it can make us complacent. If we can laugh about it, it deflates the tension and we don't have to worry about it. I think this is the opposite. This is we're able to laugh and feel human and feel united while never forgetting what's happening. And even, I guess we're going to keep shitting on Schindler's List. Well, it's not you, shitting. You it's just like, it's a different either. kind of movie. It's, yeah. You know, it's the drama. It's the very, very serious movie told about the situation. But there's also room for other kind of movies that are, you know, describing what's going on in 1942 in Germany and Poland. It feels to me like the problem with like showing a bunch of civil rights photos in black and white as if it all happened back then and it was a terrible time and we're through that now. Um, if you're showing theater still goes on, people still go on, people are singing, life still goes on it actually makes you aware that this is happening all the time, not that we can separate this as dark, scary, sad concentration camp. Thank God we've got our lives that are so far removed from that. It makes it contemporary too. Yeah. The, the comedy aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. The film is so contemporary feeling, isn't it? I mean, there's jokes in there that feel like so alive and modern. And like the characters are so progressive too. We, I mean, we talked about this in the Torah, but yeah, it, there's so much in this that holds up that it's mm -hmm. shocking because comedies are not known for holding up, but this <laughs> comedy does. Like, yeah. So we're going to head on to the modern lens in a minute. Are there any quotes or moments that you wanted to share? I'm going to look through my notes and see if there's anything. Um, but as I'm turning pages, my eyes just landed on the quote, you can't have your cake and shoot it too because the Nazis are so quick to kill everybody that they aren't thinking about anything else. Um, mm -hmm. That was a great line, though. Incredible. Um, yeah. Do you have any lines that you've struck out to that you want to share? I have a quote from my mom watching yes. this. Yes, yes. There is a moment where they announce the Nazis just invaded Poland, and my mom went, oh, shit. As if she didn't know, <laughs> as if she didn't know that the Nazis were going to invade Poland, oh, no. which I guess is a testament to how good the film is, that she was so invested, <laughs> she forgot for a moment that the Nazis invaded Poland. <laughs> Um, another quote I wrote down has to do with like the vanity of actors and it's something that I am guilty of and you might also be guilty of this, but there's a moment when Joseph Tura messed up and he's going to speak to his group of actors and he goes friends and then Carol Lombard finishes the line, Romans, countrymen, we know that you want to play Mark Antony. That doesn't help us because <laughs> as someone who's definitely used lines from plays in their real life to like express themselves I was like yeah yeah I got that other people write better than I speak why wouldn't I use their words oh 100% I also love the moment where everyone is like downtrodden about the Nazi invasion we're going to war and all jo Joseph Tura comes in shaking his head going it's awful it's awful and it's about the guy leaving during his monologue <laughs> great moment um, I mean, he's also got the line I mentioned earlier. I'll decide with who my wife is going to have dinner and who she's going to kill. Um, and then there's a great, like, 
a throwaway line that I looked up later because I knew I was like, oh, this is a good line. Let me look it up. I'll stop and look it up. So there's a line where uh, Zelensky is hitting on Carol Lombard. I think that's when Zelensky is. It might be Earhart. And he says, shall we drink to Blitzkrieg? And she she says, I prefer a slow encirclement. So he's like, (laughs) I want to drink to like this big explosion to us winning the war, you know, and she's saying like, describing how she's manipulating him. Like, no, I prefer a slow encirclement. Um, So it can be like a double entendre of like, no, I want to slow. I want you to seduce me slowly is what it could mean. But in her case, (laughs) she's saying, no, I'm going to encircle you slowly. And that's how I'm going to win this. I just love all of the meaning in those two lines that they trip over so quickly. Um, That really struck me this time about how many levels the script hits, how smart it is, how many double entendres are uncovered. Like, it's brilliant. That's brilliant writing. It's brilliant. And then when they call out the very serious stuff, like um, Zelensky's like the winning side is the right side. And that's kind of like a scary thought or an idea. And uh, when he's explaining Nazism to Carol Lombard, and he's like, see, we're, it's really not that bad. He's like, we just want people to be happy. And she's like, people who don't want to be happy have no place in this happy world. Like, it sounds mm. like she's agreeing with him. But what she's really saying is like, isn't that messed up? Yeah, we just want everyone to be happy. We want them to be the same color and creed. And and uh, and she's like, oh, well, I guess anyone who doesn't fit into this perfect vision of the world doesn't fit into your idea. Yeah. Including yep. Jews who, you know, rarely want to be happy. We usually want to kvetch. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it makes it makes us happy. Yeah. I did also find one last quote I want to share. It's in the beginning when uh, they're talking about Poland and Hitler. And they're like, Hitler's a vegetarian. But he doesn't always stick to his diet. Sometimes he eats up whole countries. Does he want to eat Poland too? But it's told like an announcer, like a narrator says it. And so it. I love that early on, it kind of like lets you into the tone of like, yeah, this is serious and kind of scary, but it's funny too. So I think they did that right off the bat. That's one of the first lines spoken in the film. I thought it was really smart and really cool. I really, I want to shout out uh, her boots. I just wrote down her furry shoes are incredible. Loved them. Um, Loved them. Also very fancy. Like, oddly, like, how is this woman wearing these incredible fur boots? Uh, But I like that she maintains her style, even in the the darkest of times. She maintains her style and her legs are still bare. I was like, I'm so uncomfortable (laughs) for you, woman in the 40s, where you like have to wear these fancy boots and have your fur coat. But then like your mid, your calves are exposed to the elements and you must be freezing that's what i was thinking yeah when looking at this outfit that you describe i want to wear it um it's incredible fabulous i love the this joke of hitler will come back as a piece of cheese is that yes uh, yes yeah napoleon they named brandy after him i forget the rest of it but they're gonna name know. cheese after Hitler. i yeah. don't remember i'm really bad at that quote the <laughs> the cheese joke uh i love setting that up Again, even showing Nazis who, as you say, say Heil Hitler a thousand times throughout the movie, that they're also like kind of making fun of him, that they're being people. And then when he when he tells the joke to him, he's like, that's not funny. It really pokes fun at the like military rank and an idea of being like a military man. Kind of makes fun of the bomber, too. Doesn't he say something about uh, she's like, I've never been with a man who can bomb to, who, who can, can drop unload two like three pounds of dynamite or whatever in under two seconds yeah and she's like turning all of his military stuff into sexual innuendos and he's not getting it he it's over get his it head. at all and that's like at the end one of one of like i think it's a very controversial moment but it, i also love it at the end of the film 
two Nazis are flying the plane that's helping everybody escape. And the man, the actor is dressed up like Hitler. So they think they're flying Hitler out of, you know, the country for some reason. And so they go up to the front and the, you know, British aviator takes over and he's like, Hey, uh, or the, I guess he's Polish. The Polish aviator takes over and he's like, Hitler wants to say something to you too. Please go back. And the guy playing Hitler says, jump out of the plane now. And they're like, yes, Fuhrer. And they do. And they oh, jump out yeah. of the plane and kill themselves because they're so indoctrinated. And so, I mean, they're brainwashed, but it's also a testament to like not thinking for yourself, not thinking clearly and being militarized. Like they just do it. And then he looks and he goes, they're very obliging. Those two were very obliging. Yeah. It's a big moment. This is a comedy, but that's pretty, that's pretty dark and not untrue all at once. Right. It's like, these are idiotic buffoons ha 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 no this is really what we're fighting this is the this is the kind of ideology we're fighting which is so also to compare it to great dictator again because i think it is amazing that these two came out within two years of each other um to think about chaplin's last speech in great dictator which if you haven't heard it is just so remarkable um it's all about we are humans stop following orders blindly there is a moment early on when they announced that war has broken out And Carol Lombard's reaction is like, so many people are going to be killed. Oh, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. And I was like, yeah, I think a lot of people don't think that way. So many people are going to be killed. This is terrible. Like, that's the logical reaction as opposed to like, yeah, Mm -hmm. let's get out there and kill everybody so we can be on top. Like, that's a very, you know, I I just loved her her basic human reaction to that. Of Yeah, that's the correct response. (laughs) Like, oh, no so many people will be killed. Right. There's no rah-rah military uh, sentiment to this movie. Although there is like rah-rah help the resistance and like stand up for what's right. But it's yes. also like, don't just be a peon. It's it's complex, just like everything else in this film. Because <laughs> we're like rooting for for the army. Like we want, we want the allies to win. But at the same time, we're making fun of like the rank and file of like, if the Fuhrer tells you to jump out of a plane, you're jumping out of a plane. Like, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. completely. All right. Well, we've come to the end of the show, The Modern Lens. It's now The Modern Lens portion of this show. What didn't hold up and what did hold up? I think so many things hold up. So it's, you know, the what doesn't hold up, obviously, is there's like, there's not many women, not people of color. And the marital expectations that are described for women are kind of rough. But then the film also turns those on its head. And we know that Carol Lombard doesn't need to fit into those expectations And um, she also gets top billing. I just want to shout that out. Carol Lombard has top billing in this picture as herself and as Maria Tura. So I was like, that's that's pretty damn cool. That is pretty damn cool. It's easy for me to look at it and say it's incredibly progressive how much she's sort of resisting all these men coming on to her. And that we're not supposed to be favorably looking at all these men coming on to her. We're like, they're a bunch of creeps. Uh, it sort of feels very progressive that it's like, yeah, we hate these creepy men who keep hitting on her. And I don't know, contextualizing it, it feels very progressive for the time. It doesn't necessarily feel progressive now. I would agree with that. Um, And the satirization is really strong. I mean, I mentioned this earlier, comedy usually doesn't age well, but this does. And I think Mm -hmm. it's because it has such a clear, strong perspective and is very bold in its choices and is on the right side of history. So like, that's probably what helps. Again, I think the, the one modern lens I'm thinking through is what does satire look like now and and who is it against and how can it be used as a powerful tool of resistance? Because I don't know, I, again, I thought a lot about late night talk show hosts satirizing. Well, and I also don't think, I think in the past, a lot more people would go to see a movie, right? 
So it's not, you're not in your own bubble of what information you're receiving. That's so a good point. A lot of people could see this and they'd be affected and impacted by it. Whereas today people are watching news and shows that are specific to what they want to hear. So like misinformation spreads like wildfire now because people don't want to hear actual facts. They want to hear things that support what they already believe, conspiracies and things like that. So they will seek them out. Right. Um. So like a lot of the satire that's being made isn't even reaching the people that it's satirizing. Um, and right. the people that need to know about what's going on aren't even getting this information. <laughs> so that's what's terrifying to me now. But that's what I think also must have made this more powerful back then because more people would have been able to see it. I will say uh, I love comedy and sitcoms as a tool of uh, education and and statements. Uh, I think Abbott Elementary is doing that right now. The way they are making fun of charter schools, which is not something you expect a sitcom to target. Like, what? They're they're getting into the intricacies of how charter schools take money away from public schools. I think that's so powerful. And I think they're using comedy as a tool in that way. Um, and I think that's sort of the tradition that this is that that inspires in me. So we are going to head into the double feature portion of this show. If you loved this movie and you want to check out movies that are similar, I feel like the number one Obviously, besides the other To Be or Not To Be remake, which you right. can also totally check out. For me, there's two movies that really spoke to me about this that were like connected with it. I feel like The Producers, the Mel Brooks film from 1968, is a great choice. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would go really well with this. But also there's this movie called All Through the Night. It's a Humphrey Bogart film from the early 40s. That's about unlikely heroes taking on the Nazis and winning. So Humphrey Bogart kind of plays like a Damon Runyon, Guys and Dolls-esque gangster figure. <laughs> he's a gambler and he stumbles upon a ring of Nazis and he's got to take care of them. <laughs> like he's got to make sure they get caught and taken up by the police. They have like an evil Nazi plot to like do something to American ships and he, <laughs> he foils them and it's great. This was another film that was a comedy that shows how terrible and, you know, like the dictatorship, the authoritarianness of Nazis, it takes that on and says like, no, we've got to fight this and it's happening in America here. There are Nazis here too. Um, so yeah, I would recommend that film with this as well. I also feel like Jojo Rabbit is a really good film to watch with this. Mm -hmm. uh, they really did that Heil Hitler joke a lot too, where everybody had to say it to each other once they came into a room and how ridiculous all of that is. The Great Dictator, as you had mentioned, is another great double feature to go with this. Um, did you have any double features that you thought would go really well with this film? I do. Um, so I, I absolutely agree with uh, the ones you said. Um, I think it is interesting to look at the criticisms of Jojo Rabbit and how it holds up in in how sentimental it is. I personally love it. I know a lot of people who don't. I, I think it's an yeah. interesting conversation with this movie of like, what does it look like to look back and sentimentalize something versus telling the story while it's happening? I have a, another friend who's a queer Jew who hates Schindler's List and Jojo Rabbit, both because they simplify and over-sentimentalize these horrors. Mm. Whereas I agree with you, I think they complexify them. Okay, so my pairings are, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. It is a Norman Jewison movie. It's from 1966. Uh, it is a parody of the Cold War mentality of a bunch of small town Americans. And it feels like the same kind of thing of satirizing something while we are in it and speaking to the absurdity of war and hatred. It is so funny and beautiful and absurd and delightful. Uh, I think that would make a great pairing. And then the other one is If You Love Lubitsch, uh, the movie Clooney Brown, which he made right after this. I knew you were going to say it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I of knew course. It. I love it so much. 
there's a character, Professor Belinsky, very similar to Selinsky, who uh, is a, a Nazi resistance writer. And it's so subtle. I feel like there's such a beautiful subtlety to we are constantly aware that he's a Nazi resistance writer. And also he he's just in love with someone. And that's most of what it's about. And there's a strong female character, the a woman who just wants to be a plumber, right? <laughs> she just wants to be a plumber. That's her whole, oh, it's so, yeah. She, and Jennifer Jones is incredible in it. Um, it's a real, yeah, two very strong female comedians, which I think is uh, a wonderful double feature. Yeah. And I would add just in terms of Lubitsch too, I feel like another quintessential Lubitsch is Shop Around the Corner. Yeah. Um, it's been told and retold so many times. I mean, people at home, you might know it as in the good old summertime or you've got mail. Like it's one of these crazy for, or not crazy for you. Uh, she loves you know, me. She loves me. Thank you. Mm-hmm. It's like a very famous story told over and over again. But to me, it shows all of the aspects of what Lubitsch is good at. It's maybe less sexual than some of the other stuff, but, um, I feel like it's a really quintessential piece of work of Lubitsch's to yeah. get an idea for like who he is as a director. And these social undertones and and class dynamics are always there in such, a, again, a beautifully subtle but very present way. The only work that I'm like, uh, about of his ends up being Maurice Chevalier because he's so lecherous and kind of creepy. So like when you're watching his musicals, you're like, oh, I'm kind of not into your whole vibe. I don't like your attitude <laughs> about women. But yeah, thank heaven <laughs> for little girls. Ones. Uh, weirdly doesn't hold up yeah no Charlie's a creep although I will recommend have you you ever seen the Marx Brothers movie where they're all doing a Chevalier impression to try to get a passport yes monkey business (laughs) totally it's so good uh yeah 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 the uh they put a record on his back right yeah yeah yeah. I love it Uh, one of my favorite moments (laughs) oh I love that you also know that this is why we're friends okay well This was lovely. Thank you so much for being on the show, T. Roche. If anyone wants to follow you or find work of yours, how can they do that? Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at T. Roche's Petals, um, a reference to It's Wonderful Life, Zuzu's Petals. Uh, Just search my name. I think I'm the only T. Roche Schneider. uh, And you can go to my website, trocheschneider.com. Fabulous. Well, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you so much. This is my dream. I want to talk about old movies all the time. And we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Tiro Schneider. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on anchor.fm or Spotify for podcasters to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. 